Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. We continue our Lenten series. Lent is why I am wearing purple again this week. If you haven't seen a clerical stole before, uh, this simply helps to remind us of the season that we're in and what we're preparing our hearts for, which of course is Easter. But we still have quite a journey ahead of us, uh, six more signs of things to come. Now, last week we explored what John calls the first sign, Jesus turning water into wine at a wedding. And this is one of my favorite stories of Jesus, Jesus making good wine and a lot of it to keep a party going late into the night. I mean, that is just good stuff. I made a joke about apothic red and how bad it was last week. And a lot of people gave me dirty looks. I deserved that. But I stand by my opinion, so take it up with Jesus. That said, (laughs) as much as I love this story, uh, it is one that we do need to be careful with. It is very easy for Christians to misread a celebration of Jewish custom and ritual as a critique of Judaism. You see, if you don't already understand the culture and the beauty of these rituals, what they meant and what they were for, then the fact that Jesus takes these stone jars for ceremonial washing and repurposes them as vessels of celebration, that can very easily seem like a repudiation of those religious practices that Jesus grew up with and continued to celebrate throughout all of his life. There's no sense in this story that Jesus ever stopped ceremonially washing his hands before a meal or that he ever expected his disciples to stop either. So instead of imagining this story uh, as these stuffy rules that we used to follow, but now we get to party, a better way to contextualize Jesus' intent here is on the lines of him speaking to his people saying, we've had these rituals that have sustained us for centuries that have reminded us of God's presence near us and with us. And the first sign of things to come is a celebration of the fact that it was all true. God was near, God is near, and everything we have longed and hoped for, it is all coming to pass. Now, you may not be Jewish, I'm not Jewish. And so these rituals that Jesus celebrates, they aren't mine, but I still find this incredibly encouraging. I mean, how do you remind yourself of God's presence? How rituals and systems and habits do you celebrate that keep you close to God? Do you journal? Do you pray? Do you get up every Sunday and come to church even when it's daylight savings time? Do you volunteer at the mustard seed to pray for peace? Jesus is saying that whatever our reminders and rituals are, when they become realized, they point us to the world that will be. And so my encouragement is in whatever small moments you experience joy in the presence of the divine, whatever religious commitments you have that transcend your religion and connect you directly to the heartbeat behind them, reminding you of God's goodness always, that is the sign Jesus is pointing toward. Our rituals are not wasted. Our attempts at goodness are not futile. The small contributions that all of us make every day to align ourselves with God's imagination for the world on earth as it is in heaven, Jesus once said. All of this is a sign of things to come. Today, we move on to sign two, but we're actually going to talk about two connected stories that move us together toward John's second sign. 
First of all, let's pray together. God, who continues to offer us signs of things to come, who speaks with grace and compassion, even in the midst of our hurts and fears, even in the midst of the violence we direct toward each other. May we have ears to hear and eyes to see your presence that surrounds us always. May those glimpses of truth, those glances of beauty, inspire dancing and celebration, our parties long into the evening. And may that joy become the fuel to re-engage the needed work of justice and restoration around us. May your signs inspire us to the hard work ahead, trusting that none of it is in vain. And for those of us who are hurt today, perhaps let down by someone we trusted, perhaps wondering if what we thought was goodness was just an illusion. We ask that your spirit of comfort be near and close, that truth would bubble to the surface and that healing be allowed to take place in each of us, and that this might in time become a sign of your promise, creation renewed and restored in us. May joy return wherever it is lacking, and may your kingdom come as it already is in heaven. In the strong name of the risen Christ, we pray. Amen. Okay. Today we got two stories. A woman at a well and an official with a sick son. And we're going to talk about how I think those stories are actually connected in John's imagination. But here's our agenda for today. Weddings and divorces, royal officials, and no signs for you. But we're going to look at John 4 today. So let's start by setting the stage. After the wedding at Cana, Jesus has gone down to Jerusalem for the Passover. So Cana, where the wedding that we talked about last week happened, is in the northern region called Galilee. Jerusalem is way down in the south in a region called Judea. And Jesus makes that journey for Passover. Chapter 4, he's starting the long journey back home. We're talking about 150 kilometers here. So this is a multi-day journey by foot. However, between Galilee in the north and Judea in the south, there was a region called Samaria that Jesus would have had to travel through. Now, Samaritans were a related ethnic group that drew their lineage from the Assyrian occupation of this area centuries earlier. So they had both Assyrian and Jewish ancestors, and they had religious practices that were drawn from both of those stories and cultures. But while traveling through this area, Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at a well one day. And you may have heard that story. Uh, We have talked about it here before. It's a pretty famous one. But Jesus comes up and asks her for a drink. She's surprised that he's interacting with her so freely. Um, There were gender expectations at the time. But there were also clearly some tensions between these ethnic groups. Regardless, they strike up a conversation and two important things happen. First, Jesus slowly shifts the conversation from a drink of water to the living water that he offers. And second, he surprises her with this profound knowledge of her life and story. Now, when you read the interaction in John 4, it feels kind of strange Uh, The woman says, look, man, it's kind of weird that you're out here asking me for water in the middle of the day. And Jesus responds, actually, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for living water. To which she replies, what are you talking about? Now, in English, it can kind of sound like she's just not keeping up with things, right? But the metaphor that Jesus uses here is actually very subtle. 
Uh, Living water sounds obviously spiritual to us in English, right? But in the first century, living water was also a way of saying running water, like a stream. There's a very ancient document called the Didache. It's one of the first church manuals that we have, sort of a book about how to do church. But at one point it talks about baptism. How do you do a baptism? And the writer says, look, if you can, always use living water for a baptism. If you don't have that, still water's fine, but try to make sure it's as cold as possible. This basically comes down to hygiene, right? Dumping old, warm, standing water on top of someone came with some significant health risks. Living water, flowing water, or at least cold water was going to mitigate the presence of bacteria. They didn't understand bacteria, but they knew what made you sick. The point being, living water just meant fresh running water like a stream. So when Jesus asks for well water and says, actually, I've already got some fresh water, the woman is like, well, why are you here asking me for a drink? And so it's now that Jesus starts to make clear that he's getting at something deeper. He says, whoever drinks the water I offer will never thirst again. You see, this water that I give becomes in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so the woman replies, okay, I see where this is going. Tell me more. Now we get to the famous part of the story, right? Jesus says, go and get your husband. And the woman says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, that's right. You've had five husbands and the man you are with now is not your husband. Many scholars, like Lynn Kohick, have pointed this out, and we've talked about it before. The assumptions we make about this woman are flat out wrong. Uh, This is not a story about some serial adulteress. This is not a judgment against this woman that Jesus is making at all. In fact, Jesus is empathizing with her story here. And the simple fact is that a woman in the first century could not divorce a husband. She could only be divorced by a husband. In other words, uh, this is a woman who has been continually abandoned and discarded by the man in her life, and she has continued to pick herself back up and move forward regardless. And the way that she responds to Jesus' comments indicates that she understood his intent and compassion. She saw his words as welcome, not criticism. And so she says, I can see that you're a prophet. And they begin to talk about their various religious traditions. The woman ends up coming to a place of trust in Jesus. And she invites him to spend some time with her and her community. Now, side note here. This is not all at all out of character for Jesus. Uh, When Jesus talks about divorce in the Sermon on the Mount, he takes a very similar approach. He says, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you... Anyone that divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. Now the context here, again, only men could divorce a woman. But if they did, they were supposed to at least provide a certificate of divorce, essentially a legal divorce that allowed a woman to remarry. That's part of the law of Moses. The problem was they often didn't do that. Largely because there were basically no ramifications for men getting divorced at all. Women, on the other hand who couldn't hold property or own things the way that men could, they were often dependent on finding a new partner to look after themselves. But if they weren't legally divorced, that would automatically make them adulterous in the eyes of many. So Jesus says, look, divorce is hard. And divorce is full of hurt. Divorce is a concession to the brokenness of our relationships, but it happens. 
let's not add injustice on top of that. Let's look out for those who are disadvantaged by the status quo. And so consistently throughout the gospels, Jesus takes the side of anyone who is on the downside of the power differential, advocating for a more fair approach to the systemic imbalances in all of our relationships. The gospel is not just, hey, let's be nice to each other. Jesus is advocating that we begin to fundamentally restructure the systems that allow for abuse in the first place. And so here, on his way back to Cana, the rural region that he comes from in the north, returning from a big religious festival in the south, he interacts with a Samaritan woman in the middle. A human person who was a very different experience of gender and the associated cultural norms. A human person who comes from a related but different ethnic and religious background from himself. He empathizes with the imbalances. He commends her for her religious practice and devotion. And he says, a day is coming when where we worship and how we worship won't matter. A day when all of our limitations and misconceptions will be swallowed up by grace. And on that day, we will all of us worship in spirit and truth. Okay, hold on to that interaction. I think it's going to be important as we follow the rest of the story in chapter four. Now, picking up in verse 43, we read, after the two days he left Galilee. Now, that's the two days he was invited by this woman to stay in her community uh, with her teaching them in Samaria. But after the two days in Samaria, he left for Galilee. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Yet when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. For they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival. Now, this is sort of an interesting comment, right? John points out that an honor, a prophet has no honor in his own country, and then Jesus comes home to his own country and is greeted with, I mean, a lot of honor. Now, probably what's happening here is the author is being ironic. And that's because two chapters later, in John 6, 15, we read that Jesus, knowing they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. And then a few verses later, we see from this time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. All of that happens in the Galilee. In other words, he comes home and the people are excited, but then they listen to him and they become a little less enthusiastic. And John is sort of setting the stage for what's going to come as the story unfolds. Either way, this is what we read next. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. Again, we're laying groundwork here. We're connecting back to where we were last week. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. But the royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. And the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. 
This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Now, another interesting story, right? And again, fascinating that John thinks this, all of this, is the second sign of things to come. But let's talk about a few things here and how this whole chapter works together to illustrate what I think is John's point. First of all, a certain royal official. I don't know if you noticed this, but this woman at the well in John 4 and this royal official in John 4, neither of them get names. That's not to say that all of the characters in John are anonymous. They're not, right? Nicodemus in John 3, Nathaniel in John 2 are both named and they illustrate a personal connection to Jesus. Uh, We even talked about Nathaniel's possible connection to the wedding at Cana last week. But we also talked about how John has an agenda in writing his gospel. This is a second generation Christian text. It's reflecting back on the story of Jesus and highlighting the meaning and the significance of his life. And so often, when we read these types of anonymous encounters in John, it could simply be By the time John has written, the names and identities have been lost and forgotten to time, but it's more likely that the reason certain stories are anonymous is because the writer wants those stories to be reflective of something larger. Uh, The scholar Gary Burge says that these anonymous characters are mirrors in which to view Jesus from another angle. In other words, when a character is anonymous, John wants us to see ourselves in that character. And we see ourselves in them, and through that, we see Jesus in a slightly different way. Okay, and what about this certain royal official? Who is he? Well, literally, in Greek, what we read here is a certain royal. Now, that doesn't mean this guy is the king, or even a member of the royal household, but what it does signify, likely, is that he worked directly for Herod Antipas. Now, Herod was the tetrarch of Galilee. Fancy title, but it just means that he ruled over one-fourth of an area. And in this case, it was the northern Jewish region Galilee and the smaller region to the east called Perea. Now, Herod had been installed there by the Roman Empire to keep the Roman peace. That largely meant negotiating with the Jewish peoples and, if necessary, violently putting down any uprisings. He is the son of Herod the Great, who ordered a bunch of babies murdered around the time of Jesus' birth, And he is the same man who would later murder Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. So not a good dude. But that means that the certain royal that comes to Jesus, for all intents and purposes, works within and directly for the very system that kept Jesus' people subjugated, that harmed his family directly, and that would eventually execute Jesus himself. In other words, There is a really interesting contrast John is building in this chapter between a Samaritan woman abandoned by her partners and a royal official who wields the power of the state. And the hinge here, for me, is a sort of gruff line we get from Jesus. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. See, that comes at a really interesting moment in the encounter. Uh, We read that this official went to Jesus and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. And Jesus says, ah, without a sign, you'll never believe. Except if you look more closely at the language here, there's some, I think, questionable choices that the NIV has made. 
The word they have translated begged here is the word erota. And begged is okay. It can be used that way, particularly if the context indicates it. But more commonly, this word simply meant to ask for something. That, that's how it's translated in the ESV. He asked Jesus to come and heal his son. Where the NIV is getting begged from is that the word is in what we call the imperfect indicative form, and that doesn't really correspond to the past tense begged. It indicates something like an ongoing action. He kept asking Jesus to come. So begged is an option, I get it. But from the context, I would argue here there's another possibility. And you can see that in the way that the NASB has translated this when it says he began asking or he kept asking Jesus. Which makes more sense to me when Jesus replies, unless you see a sign of wonder, you will never believe. And the man who is used to getting his way, used to making demands, used to seeing people respond to him immediately when he asks for something, says, sir, come now before my child dies. That's an imperative in the Greek, which means it's a command to Jesus, come now. And there's a really interesting dynamic here. This man, this official, he clearly knows that he needs Jesus' help. He calls him sir, it's actually kurios or Lord in the text. He defers to Jesus in one sense, but then in the next he's demanding or at the very least strongly expecting that Jesus is going to accommodate him in the next. And man, if that doesn't ring true for me, I mean, how many times have I prayed or how many times have I given money or how many times have I volunteered my time and then acted as if, or at the very least felt like I deserved something on the back end? In fact, sometimes there's something even more insidious in that, isn't there? Sometimes it's even more satisfying to think you're not getting what you deserve. It feels like you've been hard done by or underappreciated and we kind of feed off of that. That's a tricky line, right? Because sometimes we are underappreciated. And sometimes we are underpaid. And sometimes we have been undervalued or dismissed. And we do need to learn how to stand up for ourselves and ask for something. But maybe that's part of the story here. Our starting point, where we come from. Today, we might even call that our privilege. But the disparate experiences of, say, an ignored woman and a respected official that can often obscure the line between the goodness of God that comes to find us and the expectation of being served that often comes from existing for far too long at the top of an unbalanced scale. Now, is there anything wrong with what this man is asking for? Of course not. He has a son in pain, a child that he loves. Of course he would advocate for healing. But remember, this story, this chapter, is more than just about a son in need. This is about the world to come. And so we get this really interesting contradiction here. Where Jesus says, you won't believe without a sign. So no, no sign for you. You'll have to leave trusting. And he does. And then John tells us that all of this is a sign of things to come. And if you were to sit me down and demand that I tell you exactly what I think John's meaning here is, I mean, yes, of course I would say that it's about the healing of our bodies. 
and the ways in which the world to come will free us from the terror of sickness and the tyranny of decay. But if I had to give you my gut feeling, my my perspective on what I think he's getting at, I'd have to say it's more than just the healing of our bodies. I think it's also about the healing, the reordering of our expectations. How perhaps those of us who are used to getting our way and acquiring what we need and having our requests taken seriously, how we can learn to trust in what we can't see, even as those of us who've been pushed to the edges and ignored start to notice God showing up in all kinds of unexpected places and out-of-bounds conversations, signs of God all around them. Except here's the real beauty of all that. That is a gift to everyone in this chapter. Because Samaritan women who notice the Messiah talking with them as equals, they return home as leaders in their communities ready to expand the story for everyone. And royal officials that gain the ability to trust in the goodness of God beyond just what they can demand with their stature they become the kind of people that slowly decouple their imagination of God from the expectations of their culture. And when that truly begins to happen, then even those royal officials can become signs of God's blessing to those who've been struggling to see the divine all along. And maybe this is the sign of things to come, a world in which the hungry are filled with good things and the rich are sent away empty. And both of them are better for it. The promise of a God that loves each of us enough to meet us wherever we are with the healing that we need specifically. May the sign of things to come give us hope for the healing of our bodies today, absolutely. But perhaps also the healing of our expectations and assumptions about God. And the trust that as we grow in awareness of the goodness that surrounds us always, learning to celebrate what comes near to us instead of just a demanding of more, that we might actually see the unending graciousness of God and the ways that we can become a blessing beyond ourselves to those who need it. Let's pray. God, that comes near to all of us with signs of things to come. For those of us who, like a Samaritan woman, have not seen your presence for a very long time and have put and pushed aside ignored, abandoned, might we today see your presence, a sign of your goodness around us and near us. Then for those of us who like royal officials are full of blessing in our lives, surrounded by your goodness all the time and yet still wanting more, might your spirit come near to remind us that a sign is not gonna make things better. It is only our awareness of gift that heals us. God, might we recognize that probably most of us are present in both of these characters. 
And that the push and pull of your spirit that welcomes us with signs of things to come and encourages us to see what is already around is the goodness and the graciousness of the God that loves us perfectly. That yes, you want to heal our bodies, our minds, our emotions, but also our expectations of you and our sense of purpose in the world. Might you come near to each of us just as we need in this moment, in this day, right now. And may that become the fuel, the clarity, the energy to become a sign of things to come to everyone we encounter this week. May we speak peace and blessing and truth with our words and our actions and the ways that we love. In the strong name of the risen Christ, we pray. Amen.